So the theological point of the sermon this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. Because Jesus has absolute power, he is able to deliver us even from demons. Because Jesus has absolute power, he is able to deliver us even from demons. Now, in order to set the context for this section, we've been traveling through the Gospel of Mark. And you need to remember that we're in a section of Mark where he is intentionally giving us four stories about Jesus' unique power and superiority. So two weeks ago, last week we had Will Galkin preaching. Two weeks ago, we were in the Gospel of Mark at the end of chapter 4, and you'll remember that Jesus was teaching along the Sea of Galilee, and he told his disciples, hey, let's go to the other side. They jump in a boat, and as they're in the boat, the windstorm whips up, and it was so violent that these fishermen, experienced fishermen, the disciples, thought that they were going to die. And so they woke Jesus from a deep sleep, And he stands up and rebukes the wind and the sea. And suddenly, the Bible says, there was a great calm. That was the first demonstration of his power in this section, a power over nature. In today's story, Mark strings along the next episode. It's his power over demons. And then in next week's sermon, we are going to see his power over disease and death. And so, again, Mark is just painting a portrait for us. In a sense, letting us see Jesus rise up over all of these elements. And in the end, you conclude, yes, Jesus is superior to all of these things. So because Jesus has absolute power, he is able to deliver us even from the demons. That's this section. Now, there's four points to the sermon. This morning, I'm just going to give them to you as we go through the sermon. So point number one in verses one through five is simply this. Jesus meets messy people. Jesus meets messy people. Luke read this for us. In verse one, it says, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Mark doesn't give us an exact location, like a a specific town that you can find on the map, but historians say that there was a town called Gergesa, it's no longer there, on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, and what happens in this story fits the description of this once town. Jesus now is outside of Jewish territory. He's where the Gentiles live, and we'll see this in a little bit because there's pigs all over the place. Uh, There's no Jewish customs. There's no Jewish holidays. It's as though he's, he's pushing back and going into a new region, again, doing this to show his superiority. As he's traveled across the sea, we know that the boat skiffs up on the sand, and Jesus, it says, steps out of the boat. In verse 2, Mark says that when Jesus steps out, immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words, immediately something happens. A man meets him. And this guy is quite the welcoming committee. Mark gives us several characteristics of the man so that we can fill in the picture. In verses 2 and 3, we're told that he was a man who lived among the tombs. He came out of the tombs. In verse 2, we're also told that he was a man with an unclean spirit. And if you wonder, is there a difference between unclean spirit 
And demons, we see later on that this unclean spirit is a demon. So I think it's safe for us to say when we see unclean spirits in the Gospel of Mark, we can say this is demonic activity. And that's who this man was possessed by. In verses 3 and 4, we find out that he's unusually strong because of this demonic activity. The local community had somehow bound him with chains at points. And he, in his great strength, had wrenched apart those chains and broke the shackles in pieces, showing that no human had the power or the abilities to subdue him. And so in your mind, just keep these things in, in, in front of you, that he's coming out of the tombs, and he's a kind of guy who has wrenched chains loose, and so perhaps he has muscular lines in verse 5, we're told about his activity. It says, day and night he was among the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. So there's open wounds on his body. The guy's a mess. If we go to the Gospel of Luke, there's one more characteristic. Luke says that he approaches Jesus with no clothes on. And that's enough there just to form a picture in our minds. People don't live in the tombs and cry out and cut themselves. Chains that have been broken off, maybe some chains that are left on his wrist rattling with the chink, chink, chink. To the Jewish audience, here are the disciples who are in the boat. They have a front row seat. This guy is living in the realm of the unclean. Dead people were considered unclean. So this is altogether unlawful, just contrary to the nature of the Jews for this man. He's a guy who's in the tomb. He lives among the dead. If we were to put words to this guy's life, we could say that he's miserable. He's wretched. He's dysfunctional. He's an outcast. And yet, do you remember back two weeks ago, Jesus at the end of a long day says, hey, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. And the disciples had to be scratching their heads saying, why? And all along, Jesus is planning this meeting to take place. This is the person whom Jesus has come to see. This is why Jesus wanted to cross over to the sea. He had an appointment with this miserable, dysfunctional, wretched outcast. Point number two, verses 6 through 13. Jesus delivers from the demons. Jesus delivers from the demons. Most of our time this morning will be sent, spent in this section. In verse 6, it's, it's as though Mark introduces us to a conversation that's taking place. In verse 6, it says that the demonic man saw Jesus coming from afar. So imagine the guy up in the cemetery in the tombs, and he sees Jesus on the boat. The boat skiffs up on the sand. And Jesus steps out of the boat. And this guy, he could have retreated further back into the tombs or behind a stone and hid there. He could have stayed there quietly like a hunter and just observed Jesus' actions there on the beach. But it doesn't say that. In verse 6, when he sees Jesus, it says that he ran. So picture the disciples on the backside of Jesus, perhaps still in the boat, there's Jesus on the shore there, on the sand, and this guy starts running out of the cemetery area without any clothes on, skinned up, perhaps muscular from all of his strength that he's used along the line, and he's running speedily towards Jesus down the beach. 
in verse 6, it says that when he gets to Jesus, he falls down. And that's the same term that's used elsewhere in the Bible for worship. So he's in this position, this physical position of bowing down to Jesus. And he starts talking. But it's not the man that's talking. It's the demon inside of him that's talking. And he says to Jesus here in verse 6 or verse 7, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now we have to pause here for just a moment to look at these lines from the demon. We know that this is demonic activity because this man would not have known who Jesus is. The demons do know who Jesus is. And the acknowledgement from the demon is that this is Jesus, son of the most high God. Now, this statement is significant for at least two reasons. He is declaring that God is most high. He stands, that is God, stands at the top as the ultimate being over all creation, including this powerful demon who is wreaking havoc in this man's life. The demons know who Jesus is. Isaiah 14, we have a glimpse that goes all the way back to Satan as an angel in the presence of God in heaven. And in chapter 14, verse 14, here was Satan's sin, if you will, his transgression against God, where it says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like, and here's the word, the most high. But there's only one most high. And after that, God cast Satan and a legion of his followers out of heaven because no one is going to rival God's position. So for the last eons of time since that had happened, these demons know who God is. And now here is a very close encounter on the beach between the Most High and one of these demons here. And the demon is now acknowledging, God, you are the Most High. You are the one over all of creation. He's learned that lesson. But it goes a step further. Who is the most high here? Truth number two is that Jesus is most high God. And you might ask, well, wait a second, because I see the language here from the demon saying, Jesus, you are son of the most high. So where do you get that from, that Jesus is the most high God? It's from the term son. Sonship in these cultures and the and in these societies, has the idea of sameness or oneness. In our Western culture, we typically use the term son to emphasize generational differences. So I have a son sitting over here. I have a son down that hallway. I'm father. They're sons. There's that generational difference. But in these cultures that are present during biblical times, sonship has the idea of likeness, or being of the same essence as that person. We see this in scripture, such as Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Look at the sameness or the same essence or oneness here. It says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Now notice the sameness or the oneness. Here it is. He is the, the son is the radiance of, of the glory of God. So think in terms of sun, uh, S-U-N, that's shining. 
Think in terms of the radiance that comes off of that S-U-N sun. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, like, as there's oneness with the radiance and the source, there's oneness with the Father and the Son here. And he goes on to say, not only is he the radiance of the glory of God, but he is the exact imprint of his nature. The exactness, the sameness of the Father. And what does he do? He does the same things that the Father does. He upholds the universe by just simply the word of his power. He, he speaks and he says, stay there. That's only something that God can do. So you see this language of oneness throughout the Bible. John chapter 10, I don't think I put it up on the screen. John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus is talking to a group of Jews who are antagonizing him. And they're entering into this debate and Jesus drops a bomb of truth on them when he says to them, I and the Father are one. And what do they do in response to that? They pick up stones to stone him because they're charging him with blasphemy. And Jesus responds to them and he says, so why is it that you are picking up stones to stone me? And in verse 33, Jesus says, it's not for a good work that, or they say, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. And so here is the son saying, I and the Father, there's the language, are one. And the Jews know that if you say that you're one with the Father, you're making yourself out to be of the same essence as the Father. You are making yourself out to be God. And so here when the demon says this, Jesus, you are son of the Most High God, the demon is confessing that which is true. The demon is confessing that Jesus is God. He is the Most High So here they are on the beach. And think about this for just a moment. The demon is meeting the most high God. Now, let me press this in just a little bit further so that we can feel some of the weight here. Keep your fingers here in Mark chapter 5, but turn over to Colossians chapter 1. What do we know about the most high God in relationship to this demon? What is the relationship between the most high and this demon. So Colossians chapter 1, here's Jesus, where Paul is unpacking the superiority of who Jesus is. And he says in verse 15 that he is the, there's the language again of oneness, he is the image of the invisible God, the sameness there as the invisible God. And then he goes on to say he's the firstborn over all creation. That term firstborn doesn't mean first chronologically, it means the preeminent one. But notice what he says here in verse 16. Look at the language of Jesus. For by him, by the Son, all things were created. Now, which of these things, what are the all things? Notice what he impacts here. All things in both heaven and on earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through the Son and for the Son. So here is the Son of the Most High. And go back to the beach here. As you see this demon interacting with Jesus, Paul says this in Colossians 1. That demon was spoken into existence, was created by Jesus himself. Jesus is the creator of this demonic person or this demonic presence here. He has superiority 
over him. So the man with the demon who is now speaking to him is in a place of lesser um, power, lesser strength, lesser significance to Jesus. And as we're here in verse 7 here, he says to Jesus, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, a lot is taking place here. The demon has run towards Jesus, and he's asking this question, what have you to do with me, son of the most high God? I adjure you, do not torment me. At the same time, Jesus is saying to him in verse 8, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And so you can almost picture this chaotic moment where one is shouting at the other and Jesus is commanding this demon to come out. And in, the, in this moment, the, the demon is asking, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Again, showing the greatness of who Jesus is. Now, what's going on with that statement, I adjure you by God, do not torment me? Matthew's gospel shares one more line after this. Have you come to torment us before the time? Now, by the way, if you read Matthew's gospel, there's more than one demonic-possessed person here. So this might be a colony of demonic people here, and Mark is just focusing on one of them. But there's this phrase, do not torment us before the time. In other words, the demons are aware that a time of torment is coming, and they're saying, don't do it now to us. Jude 6 says this, and the angels who did not stay within their position out of, of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness when? Until the judgment of the great day. Someday all of these demons will be brought into judgment and they know it. Perhaps that's why it says in James 2.19 that the demons believe in God and they shudder because they know of their outcome. So here's Jesus, and here's the demon. In verse 9, they're on the beach, and Jesus asks a simple question. He asks, what is your name? And the demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a Roman legion of soldiers was made up of approximately 6,000 soldiers. In a minute, we're going to see 2,000 pigs were overrun by this demon. The Bible doesn't say how many demons are actually in the man, just that his name is Legion. And I want you to know that it could be hundreds, it could be thousands, but the important part is this. The more ominous the threat, the more glorious the victory. And if you can just again picture Jesus on this beach facing this legion of demons who is saying, we are many, and Jesus in his superiority as the son of the most high God begins to deliver this man from the enemy that he's facing. It's clear who is in control. Jesus is here. It's his power that is going to reign and Mark uses this word that they are begging Jesus. The demons are on their knees begging Jesus not to cast them out of the region. Apparently, they like their locale there. What they want now are two requests. We move into verse 10. 
he, that is legion, begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And so they beg him not to leave the country. They beg him now saying, send us to the pigs and let us enter them. And verse 13 says, so that he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 pigs. And as soon as those pigs are possessed by the demons, they go crazy. It says that they rush down the steep bank into the, and are drowned down into the sea. So, again, Mark just wants us to see all of these details that are going on of this man who has come running, Jesus meeting this man on the beach, Jesus casting the demon out, Jesus sending the demons over to the pigs. The pigs go rushing down the bank and into the sea. Now, what's strange here to me, I've always read this passage, and I have felt bad for the shepherds, the, the pig, pig herds, you know, um, the pig farmers here. What about their 2,000 pigs that they just lost? In today's kind of monetary equivalent, we could be looking at anywhere from 700,000 to a million bucks for all those pigs that just went down in the sea. And nothing is mentioned about it. Why is that? Well, the silence of the Bible speaks for itself. You don't have to say anything about several thousand dollars paying for a hospital room, paying for discarded towels, paying for messy sheets that were used to save a man from a gunshot wound, or a hospital room that's been paid for and used to welcome a new baby into the world. No one talks about the sheets and the towels after the life has been preserved. In a Christian sense, the ultimate good of anyone being freed by Jesus from the slavery of sin far outweighs any kind of material wealth or asset that is lost in helping them get there. How much is one eternal soul worth? How much is our giving worth for missionaries like Sam and Molly Day? Or as we look at Luke and Karen going to Utah, you can't put a price tag on delivering someone's soul from sin because one second after we die, you and I are in heaven and the infinite joy of being in God's presence is going to far surpass anything this world deems as being ultimate. A lot of people are struggling to get their 2,000 pigs. And here Jesus says, this one soul is far more valuable than these. We're going to celebrate this one soul. In Luke chapter 15, verse 10, it says that I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, never over 2,000 pigs that are kept. In all of this, here's what we're seeing up through this passage, this point. Because Jesus has absolute power, he is able to deliver us even from the demons. Now we move into point number three, which is application. How do the people respond to Jesus? How do the people respond to Jesus? Point number three, Jesus draws out fear and rejection. Jesus draws out fear and rejection. You see this in verse 14. The herdsmen, those who had the pigs, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. 
And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And notice what they see. They came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. So apparently everybody had known about this man who was running through the tombs, cutting himself and crying out at night. They had visuals on who this guy was, keeping their distance from him. And news had traveled into the town saying, the crazy guy in the cemetery has been fixed. No way, can't be possible. So they come out for some afternoon entertainment. And when they come out there, they see that this guy is in his right mind. But notice the reaction that they give here at the end of verse 15. It says that they are afraid. Once they saw, they weren't rejoicing over this. They're fearful. And before you get too judgmental in your mind, keep this in front of you that this is the same reaction that the disciples had in the previous section when they sailed across the Sea of Galilee. The storm was powerful, but Jesus rose up over the storm, rebuked the wind, and there was a great fear that came upon them. Verse 41 of chapter 4, it says that. Why is fear a consistent response to the power and authority of Jesus? Why is fear the response? People are fearful because Jesus brings an element of the unknown into our personal lives. We get so accustomed to navigating through life as it currently stands. We have found that we can balance our lives here in town with that crazy man out in the cemetery. We've learned how to navigate sort of things in our own strength and in our own wisdom. We've learned how to control our thoughts and feelings. We've learned how to categorize them. They're in our compartments, and everything just seems like it's safe that way. But when Jesus comes in, he totally disrupts our house of cards. All of these things are just set up in our minds so that we can sort of navigate through. But Jesus comes in, and just with a word, pff, everything is changed now. And in our hearts, we say, well, if that story is true and I'm the townspeople, how am I responding to Jesus today as he delivers saving salvation to people, prioritizing that even above materialism? How am I responding to a Jesus who values the salvation of a person far above anything that I've ever acquired? How am I responding to that kind of priority in Jesus' life? Am I threatened and fearful that a life with Jesus is going to take away my precious pigs? If you're a non-Christian, I'm aiming to speak to you as truthfully and graciously as possible. When Jesus approaches your heart, there's a fear because you can't fully understand how he works or even how it will work if you invite him into your life as Lord. There are a lot of uncertainties because when Jesus comes into your life as Lord, he begins rearranging things in your life. And that gets fearful. Uncertainty is fearful. And so what takes place next is that as Jesus is there, as his presence is accessible to people, you would think that people would lean in even more and say, 
hey, can you help us out with these things? Can you straighten this out over here? Can we ask you, do you want to give us a sermon right now? But that's not what happens. Verses 16 and 17 says that when they see it, they beg Jesus to depart from their region. They beg him to leave. Why? Because instead of faith in Jesus as Lord for their lives, fear is dominating their life. And folks, every time we meet Jesus in life, there's a point of surrender that comes at the heart level, and that is fearful. And the question is, are we going to respond in faith to who Jesus is and his leading in our lives? Or are we going to respond and say, Jesus, I don't think I like that area of my life with you taking over. I'm going to beg you to leave. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to believe him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe, must have faith that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's either going to be fear or faith. And your faith simply begins with who Jesus is. He is the son of the most high God, and our response to him should be acceptance and submission. We need him to be our Lord. I think about Sarah. I couldn't remember if I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, so I went back and looked at my notes. I said, nope, I don't see it in there. I must have cut it out. Here is Sarah in the Old Testament who is following her husband Abraham into all kinds of ups and downs in life. And as she's following her husband Abraham, it's not Abraham that she's holding on to most tightly. It's the Lord whom she's holding on to. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, here's how Peter describes her. He says, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Will frightening things come into our lives? The answer is yes. Frightening things will be there. But Peter says, are you going to fear those and capitulate to them? Or are you going to hold on to the Lord in faith and say, okay, I trust you with whatever you have for my life. And for the non-Christian who's here this morning, that point of trust comes when you say, okay, Jesus, I see that you went to the cross on behalf of my sins. I'm surrendering my life to you. I'm believing in you, and my life is taking on a new direction. And with that comes just that, a new life with the Lord. Whether you're a non-Christian or a Christian, we all need to respond to Jesus with faith, trusting him, inviting him into every area of our lives, rather than rejecting and pushing him out in fear. So if the first response is fear and rejection, what's the second response? Point number four. Jesus draws out desire and witness. Jesus draws out desire and witness. So the people have begged him to leave, and he is going to meet their desires. In verse 18, it says, as he was getting into the boat, and he, again, you just think about this from start to finish. He told the disciples, let's go over to the other side of the sea. He knew what he was doing. He was coming over here for this particular moment. The crowds are rejecting him. Okay, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. It says, as he's getting back into the boat to go to the other side, the man who had been possessed with the demons now starts begging Jesus, begging him that he might be with him. 
So here's this guy who's been transformed by Jesus. And he's like, hey, I see your other 12 disciples that get to follow you around. I want to be one of them too. Good desire, right desire. But interestingly, Jesus says no in verse 19. He did not permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This is now Jesus's assignment for this guy. I want you to stay put where you are because I want you to tell all of the people who have known about you as a crazy maniac in the cemetery, all of the people who have seen you, I want them to come and see and ask you questions. What happened? And when they ask you what happened, what is he supposed to say? He's supposed to say, according to Jesus, God had mercy on me. And so throughout the rest of this man's life here in verse 20, it says he went through the Decapolis, which is a region of 10 cities, and he goes out through the Decapolis proclaiming what God has done with him. As we look at this, I think, what's the lesson that we learn? When Jesus extends mercy to us, we have this same kind of response that we want to proclaim what he has done for us. In fact, this has always been how God has been working with his people. When he rescues his people, he's doing it for a purpose, that they might proclaim his excellencies, that they might proclaim what he has done for them. Going all the way back to Israel, Exodus chapter 9, verses 16. After he's redeemed them from Egypt, he says, But for this purpose I have raised you up. For this purpose I have rescued you to show you my power. For what reason? So that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. Israel was going to be a testimony to the world of God's power. Joshua chapter 4. After they've come through battles, he says this, So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Through Israel, the rest of the peoples of the earth would know the mighty hand of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, just like that maniac. Once you had not received mercy, but now you are recipients of God's mercy. Hey, go and proclaim to people about the mercy that I have shown to you. That's God's message. And if we're honest with ourselves, we say, man... It would be really cool to have that dude's testimony. That would be one thing. If everybody knew how messed up I was, and now I get to go through this region and say, look, I'm whole. This is what God's mercy has done for me. We're all messed up. I want us to close in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 just shows us how messed up we are. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this about ourselves. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And look at the language in verse 2. You once walked in them. 
And who were you following? Pretty much the same as this maniac. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're on the same path as this demon-possessed man. And then verse 4. What did God do? But God being rich in mercy, same mercy that he declared the demoniac to share, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ and by grace you have been saved. I don't have a crazy cemetery story about my life. I don't. But through God's eyes, I'm dead. I was in my trespasses and sins. And he looked at me with the same kind of mercy that he looked at this demoniac. And he extended that mercy to me. And if you're a Christian, he extended that mercy to you. And now I have this awesome privilege. I have this privilege and I have this locale where God has placed me. To share and proclaim the mercy that God has shown me. I sit next to the demoniac in need of a savior. I sit next to the demoniac in the sense that I've been saved. There is true salvation that is offered to the craziest and even to little boys like myself when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And here we are in our Decapolis, our little region of 10 cities, our friendly little West Michigan, our neighborhoods, our places of work. And why are we there? One of the reasons that we're there is for the purpose of talking about how God's mercy has come into our lives by faith in Jesus. This is what Jesus has done. He has saved each of us. And as we gather around this table, we're saying, yes, God, yes, God, I needed your mercy. So two questions of reflection just as we close this sermon. Number one, as we're coming through this part of Mark, are you convinced of Jesus as son of the most high God? Are you convinced of who he is? That's what Mark is doing in this section. And then second, and very simply, what characterizes your life to Jesus? Are you responding in fear and rejection? Are you holding on to pigs? Or is there a desire and a proclamation to share his mercy with others? That's what we come out of from this section of Mark. And as we gather around this table and partake in what God has done, we say, okay, Lord, we thank you for what you've done. We have a desire now to go forth and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray.